3 John. Hear the word of the Lord. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you, and that you may be in good health, as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testify to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God, for they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So, if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers, and also stops those who wants to, and puts them out of the church. Beloved, I do, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We also add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. I had much to write to you, but I would rather not write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends, each by name. Let's pray. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. There are many ways for a church leader to destroy himself and, in the process, destroy the church. Maybe some of you have seen that uh, closer than you'd like to. Many do it through sexual immorality. Others do it through greed. Others do it by going astray from the gospel and teaching that which is not true. And then there are others who do it by becoming overbearing bullies and pushing people around and abusing their authority. And some combine various ways of destroying themselves and the church, and they use them all together. In some of these last letters that we have, these little letters that we often overlook, we find responses to these, these different ways of destroying a church and these answers to different, different types of leaders that, that insinuate themselves into the church and bring destruction on themselves, on their hearers, and on the church. For example, First uh, John and Second John, we looked at Second John last week, address a situation in which the, the leaders have gone astray theologically. They're no, they're no longer believing and teaching the truth. They've gone off the rails in their doctrines, and they're not believing the truth anymore or teaching the truth. And we also have the little letter of Jude, uh, which is very similar to the second chapter of, of Second Peter, in which we find leaders who were both greedy and sexually immoral. In this little letter of 3 John, we have the other category. We don't have any mention of, of doctrinal error here. We don't have any mention of greed. We don't have any mention of, uh, of sexual morality. But what we have is a bully. We have somebody who is on a, a power trip 
And he wants to control the church and control others. And here we have uh, the, the elder dashing off another one-page, one-papyrus-page letter uh, until he's able to get there and put things right. Now, in this greeting, we find that it's from the elder. We met the elder last week, and we didn't uh, go into a, a long investigation about who this elder was, but we saw that he wasn't just a local church elder, but rather he exercised authority at least over a region. And that, that authority is assumed through these letters. And we noted that, that the, the letter uh, of Second uh, John is, is from the same hand as the letter of First John, which is from the same hand as the letter of Third John. And all of these look very much like the Gospel of John in their themes and in their writings. And the oldest traditions about who wrote the Gospel of John is obviously the Apostle John. And so this is the, the oldest and strongest tradition that this also is from the Apostle John. And he wrote this one as a private letter. And this is unusual. We don't have this sort of private letter too much in the Bible. We have the pastoral letters to, to folks like Titus and Timothy. And then we have a couple of very private letters that, that made their way in God's providence into the New Testament. A letter to Philemon and this letter to a man named Gaius. And he calls him his dear friend, his beloved friend, Gaius. Now, who was Gaius? Well, Gaius, as, as far as we can tell from this letter, by the way, it was a very common name, and there are a number of Gaiuses in the New Testament, but this is probably not any of those. It was a common name, and Gaius was a, a faithful member of a local church trying to do what was right, but his church was in turmoil, and we will find out why. And he signaled, uh, the, the elder signaled what he's going to write about here. Um, if you read First John, if you read Second John, if you read the Gospel of John, and if you read Third John, you will find these themes all through them. Look at verse 1. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. What did we see last week? The two big themes, love, truth. Two big themes in the Gospel of John and all through First, Second, Third John. Love, truth, love, truth. Now, in keeping with the custom of the day, he wished Gaius good health. Verse 2. This is very typical of the, the Greco-Roman letters of the day. Beloved, I pray that you may, that it may go well with you and that you may be in good health. And uh, many of the other writers of the New Testament Christianized this greeting. You hear about grace and peace in the second John, mercy as well from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He leaves it very much in the tradition of the, the Greco-Roman letter. He doesn't Christianize it much, but he does tie it to something here. He ties it to the spiritual health of Gaius. He says, I want your physical health to be in as good a shape as your spiritual health. Now, as an aside, that should give us reason to reflect. What if somebody wished as good spiritual health for us, uh, or rather, as good physical health for us, as is our spiritual health? Would he be wishing good health on us, or would he be wishing bad health on us? That's a good thing to reflect, isn't it? He says, I know your spiritual health is strong, and I want your physical health to be just as good as your spiritual health. And how does he know that his spiritual health is good? Well, just like last week in Second John, some people had come to the elder and had talked to him about Gaius. Just like they had talked to him about the church, now they talked to him about Gaius. And he says here in verse 
3, I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. So I know your spiritual health is good. I know you're walking in the truth. And I have testimony about that because the brothers, we'll find out who the brothers are soon, the brothers came and they told me about how you are walking, how you are living in the truth. And then he has this aside. He says, this is the greatest joy I have. And I can say as a pastor, this is the greatest joy of a pastor. This is it. It's in verse 4. I have no greater joy than to hear my, that my children are walking in the truth. That's what it's all about. That's what we pastors want. We want our, our biologic, biological children to be walking in the truth. And, and that, that fills us with joy. But we also want our spiritual children to be walking in the truth. That makes life worth living for us. That's what it's about. And when we hear good news about our children walking in the truth, we say, my life was not in vain. My life was worth it. And John says here, he says, no greater joy. And this is the greatest joy of the pastor. Now, if we go to the end, let's tackle the final greeting as well as the initial greeting. Put these together. Just like in Second John, the elder says, I have a lot more to write to you. He filled up his one-page papyrus. And he says, I have a lot more to write to you. I'm not going to do it yet. He t- dashed this off because of the urgent situation. He says, I'd rather not write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face. And I noted last week, we're all longing for that, aren't we? <laughs> not mask to mask, not Zoom to Zoom. Oh, what a joy it will be. We'll, this will become a precious verse to us, won't it? when we will be able to talk face-to-face once again. That's what he wanted, face-to-face. And then he he wished them peace. He wished Gaius peace because he wasn't living in a peaceful situation. But even so, he could have peace. You remember in John, Jesus said, My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives peace, I give you my peace. And then he does what he does in Second John. People from one local church send their greetings to another local church. The friends greet you, greet the friends, each by name. And that's the greeting. Now, um, now let's get to the, the heart of this letter. What's, what, what occasioned this letter? These brothers. Who were these brothers? We find out who these brothers were in verse 5. The brothers who had visited Gaius and given a good report to the elder. Verse 5. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers. For these brothers. Strangers as they are who testified to your love before the church. So what we have was characteristic of Gaius was his love for these brothers. The brothers had visited Gaius. He had shown them love. They had returned to the elders church. And in the elders church they had said, Brothers and sisters, that Gaius is amazing. We visited Gaius and he really pulled out all the stops to show us love. So they testified before the whole church about Gaius. Now, who were these brothers? Who were these brothers? If we keep reading, testified before, uh, of your love before the church, you will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. Verse 7, for they have gone out for the sake of the name. Who are these brothers? These aren't just traveling Christians. These are traveling evangelists, what we would call missionaries. So what we have in Gaius is an example of love for 
missionaries, when the missionaries had gone out from the elders' church, and in their journeys they had gotten to Gaius' church, Gaius had opened his home for them and had shown them love. He showed love for missionaries. And that's what the elder is, is, is praising him for here. And he says, actually says, in the future, when they come to you again, you will do well not just to receive them into your home, you will do well to provision them for their next journey. That's what he says, verse 6. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. They've gone out for the sake of the name. And that name, as we will see, is the name of the Lord Jesus. So, what is Gaius' sterling quality? He loves missionaries. And he supports missionaries. And he, he hosts missionaries. He has them in his home. And John's saying, take the next step as well and, and send them out with provisions. Give the missionaries what they need to do their task. So, he's a great example for us about what we should do for missionaries. And I was a missionary. And I, I understand how important this is and how beautiful and lovely this is to have this sort of support. And there are three reasons given for supporting missionaries. Verse 7, they have gone out for the sake of the name. Missionaries go out for the sake of the name. And they do not receive support from non-Christians. Why would they? Why would non-Christians support them? That's not their job. Verse 8, they've gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. So the first reason for supporting missionaries is because they've gone out and you haven't. They've gone to places where you are not going. They've gone to places and are going to places where you cannot go. And so you can participate by, by supporting them. And no one else is going to do it. If Christians don't support Christian missionaries, folks... Guess what? No one will. We shouldn't expect them to. They receive nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, verse 8, Therefore we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. How about that? We can be fellow workers for the truth in other places where people are preaching the name of Jesus without even going there ourselves. That's how missions work. Because if we support these missionaries, we are partners, we are linking arms, we are part of the team that is getting them there and sustaining them there. And I speak with, with, with experience here. There are our beloved churches and many dear brothers and sisters who enabled Sandy and me to be on the mission field for about 30 years, Sandy in Taiwan and then us together in Mexico for 20-some years. And we understand this partnership. This wasn't just a financial thing for them or for us. We called them partners. They were our partners. They were our, our associates on the field. And now we're back in the States. And now we have the opportunity to do the same thing. We have the opportunity to send missionaries out where we cannot go. And I'm pleased, as I've already announced, that we have begun, we've taken some little steps as a church to support missionaries. Uh, one of those missionaries is on Capitol Hill, and he's preaching the gospel on Capitol Hill. Probably a place where you and I don't have a lot of access. But, but he does. He knows many people, and he can get the gospel to people to whom we can't go. And so, what are we? We, we are partners 
in hope to the hill. And we also, as I mentioned, we have missionaries in West Africa who speak English and, and she speaks Spanish and they both, both speak French and now they're learning the, the, the tribal language. How many of you can do that? Exactly. But you, you are participating with them. So that when you give the offering, part of that is going to these missionaries in West Africa to take the gospel where you cannot go. And we've also set money aside because there, there's so much uh, love here and representation here from Latin America. We also want to support some church planters in Latin America and are looking for, for the strategic place to do that. To go where we cannot go. And that's how it is when we participate and support missionaries. The Philippians, if you read the, the letter... Paul to the Philippians, the Philippians are an example of a church that supported a missionary. They supported at least one, Paul and probably Timothy as well. They supported as a church missionaries. And that's, that's what we're starting to do now. Gaius is an example of an individual supporting missionaries. And what, what, how did he do it? In two ways. In opening his home to missionaries, and in using his resources to provision them for their journey. So, in addition to us supporting missionaries as a church, let me, let me encourage you at the end of this year, looking to the next year, if you budget, I hope you do budget, I hope you live according to a budget, uh, in that budget, would you think about including a missionary, at least one, maybe more, but start with one? Not only as a church, but, but get behind some individual missionary as well. Receive that missionary's letters. Pray for that missionary every day. We had the opportunity in 2013, after being on the field many, many years, we tried in 2013 to visit everyone who supported us. And we went from South Florida all the way up to, to Michigan and all up and down the east, just about every state probably on the east coast. And, and we had the opportunity to sit down with these folks. And I can't tell you how many of these folks said to us, we pray for you every day. And then it clicked in my mind. I thought, no wonder people are coming to Jesus in Mexico. Because there are people back here they're not only sending money, and we've definitely appreciated that, but they're praying for us every day. And they were so excited to be part of something in a place where they could not personally go. And I want you to have that experience as well. The joy, the joy of participating, and then, and then open up your home to missionaries. That was one of the joys for us when we would visit a church. People would open their homes and we would get to know them and we continue to have contact with some of those people who opened their homes to us. And it was a joy for them as well as they would sit and hear stories about things going on in faraway places where they could not go either. But you need to be careful. If you open up your home, something might happen to your children. They may fall in love with the gospel and they may fall in love with missions and they may want to do what Sandy did. Because her family offered up their modest little home whenever there was a missions conference, and they hosted missionaries. And Sandy would hear these, these stories of these missionaries who would come through. And she began hearing a story one day about, this was from Aunt Nellie. Aunt Nellie was a, a missionary in Colombia, and she was telling stories about little children coming to faith in Jesus in Colombia, 
And she was enraptured by this story and she went to her mom and said, Mom, I'm hearing about little children in, in, in Colombia coming to Jesus. Can I come to Jesus as well? They're trusting in Jesus in Colombia. I want to trust in Jesus as well. And her mom said, well, of course. And she led her in prayer. And, and then she went back to Aunt Nellie and she said, I trust in Jesus now as well. How old were you, Sam? Four or five. Four or five years old. And Aunt Nellie said, one day maybe you'll take my place on the mission field. And Aunt Nellie was right. Sandy fell in love with the gospel that her parents preached to her, that Aunt Nellie preached in faraway places. And Sandy said, that's what I want to do with my life as well. Have missionaries in your home. One of the, one of the things that we're doing as we look for missionaries to support, we're looking for missionaries who come to South Florida when they are in the United States. Why? Because we don't just want to send a check. We want to know these people. We want to have them in our church. And I hope that you will be trying to be first in line to host them when we have them come through here. Get to know missionaries. Support missionaries. And when you do something, when you do this, you will discover what Jesus says. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Now, that works in a couple different ways, but one way that works is where you know your heart should be, put your treasure there, and your heart will follow. Your heart will follow your hard-earned cash. And so put your cash into missions, and you will fall in love with missions. Put your, put your, your, your cash, your money into to reaching people with the gospel, and you will fall more in love with this gospel and, and the, the task of getting it out there. That's, that, was, that was Gaius. And I wish we could stop there. In 3 John, I wish we were the only one that we had to meet in 3 John, but there's somebody else who loves, but it's not missions. He was not on board with missions at all. In fact, he was against missions. And that was a man named Diotrephus. The elder says in verse 9, I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first. So Gaius loved missionaries, and they testified to that. And Diotrephus loves to be first. That, that's the word here. This likes to put himself first. It's he loves to be first. So he had a great love, a compelling love, a love that drove him to act the way he acted. And it was the love of being first. And we see how that played out. He likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. He did not acknowledge the authority of the elder. And if that elder was the apostle John, that was brazen indeed for Diotrephes to reject apostolic authority. He, he spoke ill of them. He says he talked wicked nonsense about the elder and about uh, the elder's people. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers. He refuses to have missionaries in the church. And also stops those who want to, like Gaius, and puts them out of the church. And so Gaius was running some risk here, assuming that they were in the same church, because Diotrephes was taking over, he was refusing to to receive the brothers, and anybody who wanted to receive these missionaries, he was trying to kick them out of the church. So Gaius was putting himself at some risk by receiving these brothers. So Diotrephes was the exact opposite of Gaius. Now, there's no mention here of doctrinal error in Diotrephes. There may have been some, but it's not mentioned. There's no mention of greed. There's no mention of sexual immorality. The only thing that's mentioned about Diotrephes is that he loved to be first. He loved to be first. 
He wanted to be first in line, and he saw the way as uh, the church as a way to exercise authority over other people. Now, there is authority in the church. There is authority among the leaders of the church, the elders of the church. But that authority is always declarative and ministerial. And what do we mean by that? It's declarative. That means it's based on the Word of God. It declares what the Word of God says. And it's ministerial authority because it is serving authority, is to build up the church, not to promote the elders. On the contrary, whenever you see a church leader trying to build a following for himself and exercise uh, personal authority over others, demanding personal loyalty to him, you have trouble brewing. And that should be a, a red alert sign. Something needs to be done very quickly. Now, how can we avoid having diatrophies, if I can say it that way, in our church? How can we avoid becoming diatrophies? How can we avoid having diatrophies in our church? And the answer is, by being a church full of Gaiuses. You see, this is what happens when churches get off their mission. Then then people look at the church and say, well, this is a pretty good gig here. I think I could live well off this. I think I could get some fame off this. I think I could exercise authority off this. I think I could, could satisfy my desire for a power trip off this. But if you look at a church that is on mission, it won't look like that. It won't look like an opportunity for self-promotion because the church is all about Christ promotion. It is all about getting the gospel out to those who have not heard. And so in order for our church to be unappealing to diatrophies, we need to be a church full of Gaiuses, staying on mission, getting the gospel out to those who have not heard. And then if Diotrephes comes into our church and, and tries to see if there are any opportunities for him to promote himself, he'll say, no, this is not a good place to do that because these people are all about lifting up Jesus and getting the gospel out to those who have not heard. Now maybe Gaius, this, uh, this Diotrephes was a powerful character. And, and, and he was hard to resist. And you know what that is. You may be very, very bold, but there are people that are bolder still than you. And it's hard to, to stand up to them. And it may be that Gaius and everyone else quaked before this Diotrephes. And so the, the elder says to them, says to Gaius, verse 11, Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. So don't, don't give in to Diotrephes, Gaius. Don't imitate the evil, but imitate what is good. And then he says, Demetrius, if you want a good example of, of someone to, to imitate, look at Demetrius. Demetrius has received good testimony from everyone. This is another common name. We don't know who it was. But he's received good testimony from three sources. Everyone. The truth itself. I think the facts themselves. And also our testimony, the elder and his church. We know that our testimony is true. So you want an example to follow? Follow Demetrius, not Diotrephes. Now look at, look at what he does in verse 11. If you go back to chapter, well not chapter, there's only one chapter. If you go back to 2 John verse 9, there is a truth test of genuine Christianity. A truth test. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ, does not have God. 
Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. There's a truth test of genuine Christianity. But there is also a behavior test of genuine Christianity. And that's what we find in 3 John 11. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. A truth test, a behavior test. A truth test, a lifestyle test. And these go together, folks. Because believing the truth produces a life of godliness. And so you can go at it either way, but both of these together are a test of true Christianity. Now, we probably look at Diotrephes, and we're kind of disgusted by him. I mean, power-hungry, bullying people, kicking people out of the church, resisting missionary work. But at the same time, I think, if we're honest, we need to recognize that there is a Diotrephes in the heart of each one of us. That is to say, all of us enjoy being first in some way or another. And it comes out in the comments we make about ourselves, fishing for praise from others, in the posts we put up online to try to garner the maximum number of likes and approbation from our followers and friends, in the pride we take in our successes, in the envy we experience when other people are first and we're farther back in the line, in the way we position ourselves in life in order not to miss out on opportunities, even if our self-positioning causes others to miss out on those same opportunities. So while we may be disgusted with diatrophies, we need to be aware of that same attitude that we find in ourselves. But one of the things that can help us do that is to recognize that the first place has already been taken. You see, if we're in the church of Jesus Christ and we want to be first, the first place is already taken because it's occupied. If you go to Colossians... There's a fascinating, fascinating correspondence here. It's the same word in, in chapter 1, verse 18 of Colossians. It's speaking of Jesus, and it says, And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, and it, that in everything He might be preeminent. Preeminent. That that participle, that verb, be preeminent, is the exact same thing that we find describing diatrophies, except that there's a, a, a prefix on it. And diatrophies, it says, wanting to be preeminent, loving preeminence, and it says, Jesus is already preeminent. He is the first. And so, if diatrophies comes into this church, or any other church, and says, I, I want to be first, we have to say, excuse me, that place has already been taken... Jesus is first. Jesus is the head of the church. He's the one who reigns. Now, 3 John is an interesting little letter because it's the only letter in the New Testament that does not mention Jesus by name. It doesn't mention Him by name. But it does mention Him. And it calls Him what? The name. The name. Now, why doesn't it mention Jesus by name? Why does it refer to Jesus as the name? Well, the name has a history behind it. If you go to the Old Testament, you find out that the name is God Himself. 
And you find that every knee in the Old Testament, Isaiah 45, every knee will bow before that name, that name which is God, that name which is the Lord. Every tongue will confess that He is Lord. The name is God Himself. And then we get to the New Testament, and we find that that name, that name before whom every knee will bow, that name that every tongue will confess is Jesus Christ the Lord. As Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2, Although He was in the form of God, He did not regard equality with God something to be grasped. But He emptied Himself, taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, He humbled Himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God super-exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let me ask you something. Jesus is in the first place, but how did He get there? How did Jesus get to the first place? By taking the last place. That's why Jesus is in the first place. Did you see how His career went? He went down, down, down. He humbled Himself. He became a man. He became a servant. He became obedient. He became obedient to the point of death, even the vile death on the cross. Therefore, therefore, God highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him that name which is above every name. In order to get that first place, Jesus took the last place. Or to say it another way, in order to get that first place, He took your place. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, He took your place in fulfilling the requirements of God's law. He took your place in in suffering the penalty of God's law. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, that is yours. He took your place, and that's how He got to the first place. And so when we come to the church, first place is already taken. But at the same time, Jesus said this, if you want to be first, if you want to be first, there is a way to do that. There's a way to aspire to that. Not the very first place that's taken. But you want to be up there? He said, do this. Take the last place. If, if you want to be the greatest, then serve. If you want to be the first in line, then go to the last seat. In other words, if you want to aspire to real greatness and real prominence, then don't do it like Geotrophies was doing it. Do it like Jesus did. And He set that example for us to follow in His footsteps. There is true greatness. There is true greatness for the Christian if the Christian will follow in Jesus' steps. So trust in that One who took the place of sinners who trust in Him and then follow in His footsteps and you will discover true greatness. Let's pray. Our God, we thank You for Jesus. Name above all names. We confess Him now with our tongues, our knees bow before Him, and one day all will, because He took the last place. He didn't promote Himself. He went to the grave for us. He went to the cross for us. And therefore, You super-exalted Him. And Lord, we pray that as we see Him crucified for sinners, that we would recognize our need for Him, that we would trust in Him, that He might be our Savior as well as the Savior. And then, O God, we pray that as we posture ourselves through life, that we would posture ourselves into that last place 
that, that you might exalt us in your way and at the right time. And that people, when they see us, would not see someone who is putting himself or herself first, but one who is lifting up Jesus for all to see. And we pray this in His name. Amen.